On tonight's show, Alex Kajitani. Alex is the 2009 California Teacher of the Year and a top four finalist for National Teacher of the Year. He speaks internationally on a variety of education and leadership issues and delivers powerful keynote speeches and workshops to educators and business leaders. Also known as the Rappin' Mathematician, Alex's songs, videos, and online programs are used around the world to help students succeed. Alex is the author of Owning It, Proven Strategies to Ace and Embrace Teaching, and co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers. He also has a popular TEDx talk and has been featured in many media stories, including the CBS Evening News, where Katie Couric delivered. I love that guy. Nice shades, too. That is the CBS. Alex is also the author of 101 Tips for Teaching Online, Helping Students Think, Learn, and Grow, no matter where they are. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Alex Kajitani. Alex, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We have been trying to do this for a while, and I'm so thrilled that you're able to do this because we have a lot to talk about tonight, and I want my audience to get to know you because you have a fabulous story, and you do some great things for our profession. So thanks so much again for joining us. Uh, it's an honor. Thanks. So, you know, Alex, at the beginning of each one of my shows, I ask my guests to talk about their personal story and professional journey as much as you want to share. So who is Alex Kajitani? Ah, yeah, that's a great question. Something I wonder myself all the time. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I actually studied uh, sociology in college. And so after I, I got my first job as a social worker, uh, I was living in Santa Barbara, California, and the pay was so bad that I had to get a job at night bussing tables in a fancy restaurant. And, uh, you know, in, in a couple of hours, I would see these servers make more money in a night than I made all week. And so I thought, okay, I, I you know, I, I gotta, I, I gotta switch a few things around here, you know, instead of working, working two jobs. Uh, and so I, I started to phase the social work side of my life out. And I started eventually to uh, managed the restaurant and um, was uh, in the corporate restaurant world for a while. Uh, and so, you know, as a restaurant manager, I learned all of these skills, like, you know, how to manage the room, leadership sure. skills, how to, how to put together a training program, things like that. And then in my 30s, I finally, you know, sort of admitted to myself what I always knew, which is that I wanted to be a teacher. And so I moved down to San Diego and, and became a teacher. And it was absolutely amazing, you know, the how transferable the skills were. You know, I, I, a parent would come and complain to me about, you know, something that their kid said about my class or something. And I think, oh, come on, you know, I, I, I have people yelling at me for finding something <laughs> in their food, you know? And so, uh, so I just, uh, I, it's just really been, you know, I'm so, ever since I became a teacher, I really have, um, have, I think just sort of been doing what I always knew I was meant to do. You know, for me, people ask all the time, you know, how, when did you know you became, a, you wanted to become a teacher? And, you know, honestly, for me, there was never this big epiphany or this big moment. And I think it was right. just sort of something that I always knew. And so, uh, 
getting to do that for you know being in, being in education for nearly 20 years now has yeah. just been a really an honor and a, and a joy not always easy as we all know but um, something that I cherish so take us back a little bit um, in terms of when you grew up as a as a, a student um, talk to us a little bit about you as a student and how you viewed education before you actually got into it as a teacher yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I always loved school. I, I was It was something that I was good at, right? I, I did well on tests. I enjoyed being in school as a student. Um, and so that was, you know, something that I have always, it sort of always placed me at an advantage as a teacher because sure. it's, you know, I've been mentally cataloging like lessons that, you know, my sixth grade teacher did and things like that. At the same time, I also have always been very aware that's not the experience that a lot of students have. You know, a lot of students do not have this, wow, I really love school. I want to, you know, spend my career in schools as well. And, and yeah. so that's something that I've always, you know, really thought about and, and been sensitive to as a teacher. I also grew up in Southern California. My dad is Japanese, my mom is Jewish, and uh, I was actually named after the author Alex Haley. Uh, and so I, wow. I, they were, him and my dad were, him and my parents were friends okay. uh, when they were living in San Francisco. He was a, a struggling unknown writer and they lived next door to each other. So that's yeah. where they got the name, um, the idea to name me Alex. And so wow. I, I always say I'm a, I'm a Jewish Japanese American named after an African-American, but growing up in Southern California, I speak Spanish. So I'm all over the place when yeah. it comes to, you know, how I grew up and my own experiences in school. Well, that brings, well, those experiences really shape who you are, right? And, and, and you, you talk about that a lot when we talk about building relationships with students and how we should make sure that we honor what they bring to the table. But let's start with your, your, your book. You know, I, I, you know, went through a couple of your books 101, 101 Tips for Teaching Online, and your other book, Owning It. Um, but in your book, 101 Tips for Teaching Online, you really talk about you know, your failure when you first started in terms of trying to connect with students. And it led to this idea of rapping for, for your students in math class. Talk a little bit about that and the, the is it the itty bitty dot? Oh, and, yeah. And how you really try to, you know, make it, you know, really engaging for students and it didn't really go over well from what you thought, but somehow it traveled throughout the, the student body and people really, kids really felt like it was kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, when you talk about the rap and mathematician, you know, not, not something I ever set out to be, but uh, yeah, you know, several years ago, I was a new teacher just struggling to survive in my own classroom and I, you know, I, I couldn't seem to get my students to pay attention or sit still in their seats. And, and yet I realized a rap song would come out on Monday and by Tuesday, they seemed to have every single word memorized. And so I thought, okay, I got to play on this strength, right? And so one day, as you said, we were studying adding and subtracting decimals. And I, I wrote a song called the itty bitty dot about the decimal point. And I practiced all night and I, I really thought I was going to be the man. Now what in the world is that itty bitty dot? Yo, I just can't remember and it's making me distraught. I saw it in the price of the item I just bought. It's the decimal point. Yeah, now you're getting hot. When you add and subtract them. You know, wait, <laughs> you're laughing because you know exactly how this story turns out. Well, you know? Know, it's, 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 it's funny because I think we all do that. We all do some, some things where we think it's going to go over well and it's like, ooh. And it, sometimes we think it like doesn't go over well, but for some reason it actually connected. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a disaster. I, the students were laughing at me hysterically. And then uh, later that day, I walked to the teacher's lounge for lunch and I walked by the student lunch tables. They were all singing the itty bitty dot. And of course, the next day, they actually ran into my class with the same amount of energy that they normally reserve for running out of my class with. And and they were saying things like, oh, are you going to rap again? Yesterday was the best day ever. And um, and so that's when you know I, I started to realize this really what's become one of my central philosophies as an educator, which is that I had to stop trying to take the curriculum and forcing it into the students' lives and instead take the students' lives and see where that fits into the curriculum. There must be a rule, so listen to my rhyme and use it as a tool. Just line up the dot and give it all you got. I said line up the dot and give it all you got. And when you take the difference, in other words, subtraction, just use the same rule and bring on the action. Just line up. So my students actually started making uh, all of the rap music videos that we put on YouTube that have gotten you know hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube and are being used all over the world. And it really, you know, at the heart of it was this desperate teacher's attempt to, you know, connect with their students. Yeah. And, and that's that's important because if we can't connect with students, we, we really can't have them connect with the curriculum. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, to talk to me a little bit about, you know, those, those 100, 100, excuse me, 101 strategies. And, and when I looked at, and I took some notes, when I, when I looked at a number of your strategies and you, you broke the book up into kind of four different parts, or actually you broke the book up into 11 different chapters. Um, and some of the chapters that really stuck out to me were the building relationships, engaging students, and ensuring equity. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about those three areas the, the book is fantastic, but I think those three areas are really critical in order for us to make sure that kids really feel like they belong. Yeah, and the truth is, I mean, those three things, building relationships, engaging students, ensuring equity, you know, they, they are universal, whether we're teaching online, whether we're teaching in person or, or in between. And so, but with this book, you know, really what I was looking to do was, you know, all of when when the COVID shutdown first happened, you know, and, and teachers were sort of scrambling to, you know, how okay, I got to teach online now. And, and there was this, sort of this move toward, okay, how do I take the old reality of teaching and put it online? Yeah. And what we soon learned was that was the wrong question to ask. What we needed to be asking was, how do we build a new reality where yeah. students thrive, you know, in this in this world, which you know, may or may not ever go back to the way that it was. I think we're seeing now, absolutely, it's not going back. And, and so at the same time, you know, parents would call me during, you know, during the COVID shutdown and say, hey, I walked by my kid's bedroom and the teacher was on the screen talking, but my kid had their camera turned off and they were turned away from the computer screen, screen totally unengaged. They were just doing something on their phone. Teachers would call me and say, I can't even get my kids to show up. Right. And if they show up, I can't get them to turn my camera on. And so, you know, what we saw really was this, uh, this real challenge and toward, okay, how do I get my students involved and engaged in the class while we're teaching online? But then how do I keep them engaged sure. all the way through the entire hour or for some of our elementary schools, you know, all the way through the, the entire day? And so, I always, uh, I always fall back on something that my first ever principal, David Gex, said, which is that a, a truly remarkable teacher can teach with a 
plot of sand and a stick, right? That, yeah. That's that's all you need, really. If in all of in many of us listening today, you know, if if I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil and said, you know, can you teach me about X Y Z concept? You you probably could do it because that's what we're trained to do as teachers. We're trained yeah. to explain things. We're trained to make things engaging, and so. Zoom is really just another version, a technologically advanced version of a plot of sand and a stick. And so that that really put me into examining, okay, how do we build relationships with students, whether we're online? How do we keep them engaged? And then, you know, in terms of, you know, looking at equity and, and ensuring equity, I think one of the things that the pandemic did was it really shined a heavy spotlight on, you know, students who had access to adults in their lives who could help them, you know, get, get the academic content and get through school, internet access, yep. devices, uh, and just sometimes, you know, a, a place to, you know, a place to be while school was in session. I, I knew students who had to go to their local library in order to get on the internet sure. to take part in class. Now, sitting in your local library is nice for an hour or two, but when you've got to do it all day, every day, just to be a part of school, you know, we, we've got students who rely on lunches and breakfasts and snacks in order to get their nourishment for the day. When school closed down, things like that became quite a challenge. And so uh, I could go on and on, but those were three things that were really critical. You know, when we talk about equity, um, I, I always think about fairness and I always think about um, how do we ensure that every single child, no matter who they are, um, has access to some of the same essential skills, essential curriculum that all kids should have, right? And so when we talk about individual teachers, um, and, and, and I talk, and I look at your book and I look at both of your books, and they're wonderful books, how do you help? And in, 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 in your books, you talk about, you know, this idea of how do we, you know, work together, but how do we make sure that we, we have a school full of Alex Kajitani's and not just you know, one or two Alex Kajitani's, and then it depends on who we get as a teacher to make sure that we are engaged, that we don't hit, you know, it's like that, that hitting that educational lottery. How do we make sure that um, we keep our individuality as teachers, but we also make sure as a teams, we do some basic things to make sure that all kids have access to grade level curriculum and um, other things that, you know, we, we um, some kids get and some kids don't get because they hit the, the, the teacher lottery. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, I, Lavelle Brown, who's the superintendent of the Ithaca City School District, he had one of the best definitions of equity that I ever heard. He said recently that equity is reducing the predictability of who succeeds and who fails. I love that. Let me say yeah. that again, reducing the predictability of who succeeds and, and who fails. And one of the ways that there's a couple of things, you know, one of the ways uh, there's a lot of things, but one of the ways that, you know, is exactly what you said is how do we ensure high quality, effective teachers, you know, in every classroom, in as many classrooms as possible, you know, across our campuses and, yeah. and things like that. And, and that is, you know, that is both a struggle, but also, you know, kind of the ultimate goal. One of the things that we also saw during the pandemic is that being a highly effective teacher also means, you know, being a teacher who takes care of yourself. I mean, not just during the pandemic, but 
but we've always known that. And so one of the things I, I, uh, I got, I got, I wanted to share with you and, and your, your audience. So I, I got this email recently uh, from one of my former students. It's really short. I just wanted oh, to, to sure. read it to you, but uh, uh, it, it says, hi, Mr. Kajitani, you probably won't remember me, but I was in your math class in seventh or eighth grade at Mission Middle School. My name is Leslie Diaz, and I thought I was always bad at math, but when I had you as a teacher, I realized maybe I wasn't bad at math. I just lacked confidence. Long story short, I remember you made me stay after school several times to tutor me and to help improve my grade in class. You mentioned you'd give me a few extra points if I presented to the class some information about a famous Latina mathematician. I did, and I remember it being one of the first times I'd ever presented in front of a class. I was so nervous. However, it did make me realize it wasn't so bad and increased my confidence. I'm now a graduate of UC Berkeley undergrad and will be starting law school at UC Berkeley School of Law this fall. I currently live and work in San Francisco, California in intellectual property patent litigation as a paralegal. I can speak from experience that you making me do all that work made a difference in my life. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge, right? And what's remarkable about it as we think about equity, as we think about reducing the predictability of who succeeds and who fails, she didn't cite this, you know, she didn't cite her success as being, you know, in a class of this amazing, you know, creative teacher who raps and things like that. She says, you just made me do the work, right? And that's one of the things that we sometimes lose sight of, I think, as educators is, you know, don't forget, like, we got to just make the students do the work. Yes, we need to pay attention to their social and emotional, yeah. you know, well-being and, and the relationships and things like that. But really, you know, truly caring for our students, truly caring about our students also means that we've got to just make sure that they get those academic skills that they need in order to progress. Students come to our classroom for the relationships, but they leave our classroom because of the academic content that, that we that they learn. We don't want students who repeat our class over and over again because they love us so much, right? We want students to go out into the world with the academic content and to use that to be successful in their lives. And so a lot of times, you know, when this question of equity comes up, you know, one of the things that I often say is that, you know, we've just sometimes got to stop and do the work. Yeah. Could you, and again, I'm going to, you know, not push back, but talk a little bit more about this idea of collaboration, because I like when you were teaching in your school, how did you ensure that that in your teams and in, in your school, how did you ensure that if somebody didn't get Mr. Kajitani, that they were still going to have the same kind of experience in terms of leaving that classroom knowing some of the same basic information so they had a chance at the next grade level because that's truly important. So what did it look like for you um, as the, the teacher, the California Teacher of the Year, helping to influence your teammates to make sure that they were, and again, you, you don't, you're not going and saying you have to do it this way, but how do you work in such a way where you're, you're on the same page in terms of some of the same basic skills that all kids need to master? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, as 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 we often think about, you know, the most critical factor in the success of a classroom and, and a teacher and their students is, you know, the teacher in front of the classroom. But but oftentimes the most critical factor in the success of an entire school is really the relationship of the adults in the building. And so one of the things um, 
one of the things that I think is critical to collaboration among the adults, you know, is really running effective meetings and being able to, yeah. to run effective meetings. You know, all of us, you know, all of, all of us have been in meetings where we thought, geez, I, this could have been an email or, you know, all of us have sat in meetings that were, you know, that were just, you know, horribly boring and, and ineffective where the wrong things were getting discussed. But when we are taking the time to really, you know, have effective meetings where we are digging deep into, you know, collaborative lesson planning, into looking at data for students, one of the most transformative things that we ever did as a group of teachers was we started grading the work of students that were not ours, right? You know, that were not specifically yeah. enrolled in our classroom. As obvious as that sounds, I had never done it before. And yeah. I realized when I was just looking at the information and you know the learning that was happening in the sample or the test or whatever it was that we were looking at, and I was looking at it from purely you know, an academic point of view and grading it based on the standards without bringing my own biases into you know, the student, oh, but that student, I know that they can do it. So they just made a little mistake here and things like that. Yeah. You know, it, at first it was a little bit harsh but it ended up, I think, being one of the most compassionate things we did because we were able to start looking at academic performance from a, um, you know, from I think a much more objective point of view. And then from there, you know, the group started talking about, okay, what standards do we need to cover more of? How are we teaching these? This and then a more collaborative culture yeah. started to. So instead of always starting with the teachers and what we need to do to collaborate better sometimes we just start with the students and, and looking at you know what what is it that they're doing what is it that the data is telling us yeah. and then we go okay now how do you know what do we need to put in place as teachers in order to get that done and i think that kind of conversation that kind of collaboration really actually is a great professional learning opportunity because you know you, you may have given an assessment or the same assessment and let's say um, the, the other teacher, the, the teachers, you know, was more effective teaching a skill. And so you might be asking that teacher, what did you do? And so that teacher might be able to share some of the things that they've done. So that, again, collaboration in itself is morally neutral, but collaborating yeah. on the right work and putting more tools in our toolkits, that's why we collaborate. We collaborate because we want to put more tools in our toolkits to become better teachers so more kids will be successful. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I, I worked as a data coach um, for our school district for a couple of years. And so I go around to different schools, you know, work with a teacher. Let's, you know, take, you know, take this data, that data. Let's look at it. Let's decide what to come up with. How do we put it into lesson plans? Sure. And it was remarkably noticeable. It was just so noticeable from school to school. Some groups would meet and, you know, somebody would have really good test scores and they'd be up there leading the meeting and talking about, and then the person who had the low test scores was sort of sitting in the corner, kind of feeling demoralized, feeling like, you know, feeling like they weren't that good a teacher because this, you know, their scores were lower or they, their data was different than everybody else's. And then at other schools, you know, oh my gosh, you, how did you do that? Exactly what you said. How did you do this? How did you teach that? What were you paying attention to? You know, and so just that those questions that we ask while we're collaborating yeah. makes a huge difference in the culture of you know of the school of the learning just just like a uh, just like i would say that the culture of any family is formed around the dinner table i would say that the culture of any school 
is formed right there at the staff meeting. The culture of any department is, is formed right there during the meeting. That's where we determine as adults how we get along, how we communicate, what we talk about. And so, you know, putting some effective meeting practices into place and really getting comfortable with each other yeah. uh, is it, it, transformative for our students. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I always, you know, try to relate to my staff as the principal, one is that I'm the lead mistake maker and that we're all going to make mistakes yes. as, as, a, um, as a staff and that we want to model that for our, teach, for our students. The other thing is that this isn't about good teacher, bad teacher in terms of test scores. It's always about, you know, effective practices. And so we're not we're not going to, you know, look at somebody as a good teacher, a bad teacher. It's not about sorting and selecting teachers. It's not about ranking teachers. It's not about evaluating teachers. It's about looking at this essential skill that we as a team said is so essential to the student's success that we all need to be on the same page. And so we're going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be vulnerable with Alex. Alex, I don't teach this skill very well. Can you help me? Because if we set the culture in our school on this team, that they're no longer your kids and my kids, they're only all of our kids, and we're all trying to get them across the finish line, then yeah. we're gonna be more willing to actually share practices with each other because these are all of our kids. Yeah, and you know, one of the best things that I ever heard was that, that you know, data the data does not belong to the teachers. It actually belongs to the students, right? And in, in early in my career, I'd get good test scores or my students would get good test scores. And I'd be like, yes, I'm the man. I'm so effective. And then one year, my test scores weren't so good. And I was like, oh, I suck. You know, I'm not effective. When really the conversation was, okay, you know what? This isn't about you. This isn't, you know, this isn't your data. This yeah. is your students' data. So let's look at that and let's talk about what they need, not what you need to either inflate or deflate your ego. Yeah, Anthony Muhammad says it really well. He says, data is not condemnation, it's information. Ah, uh, yeah. So if we use it as information, it really is just more um, for us to gather in order for us to get better and better, right? And so I think that's really important. Hey, I want to switch to, to this book just quickly because I wanted to read, um, you know, Harry Wong, a part of his foreword, because I think it's really important. And I just wanted you to, to, to talk to it. Um, I remember the first time I met Alex Kajitani. I had just finished speaking at a conference when he approached me and introduced himself as a new teacher in a struggling inner city school. We chatted a bit and he thanked me for my work. Before turning to leave, he handed me a CD filled with rap songs he created that he said were helping his students learn mathematics lessons he was teaching. Given that I'm more of a Broadway musical type, it took me at least a week before I looked at these rap songs. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing. But from the first beat, I realized that what Alex had created was much more than a collection of songs. He had created a solution, a solution that got his students engaged, gave them the skills they needed to learn the concepts he was teaching. And I think that's what it's all about. And so your life's work, and I, I you know, followed you in terms of relationships and engagement, and, and your book, 101 Teaching um, uh, Tips for on Online Teaching, it really is about how do we make that connection? How do you make it relevant? How do you make it relevant for those kids coming to our classrooms? So you said something early on um, when you um, read that uh, email from your former student. She said you had her do something like a, 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 um, a paper on a Latina yeah, she had to do a, pres a, a presentation. presentation. Yeah, that was relevant to her, right? 
absolutely. So, so those kind of things, we have to make sure that we know what they are bringing to the table. And so it wasn't the wrapping. I mean, the wrapping was a connection. But what was your thinking in terms of, you know, when you're saying, I'm drowning here, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, you know, truly, what do you say to those new teachers? I know you have a lot of tools, but what do you say to those new teachers? Because um, a lot of them come in and in your book, you talked about how many like 18% leave within the first five years. And so how do we make sure that we hold on to these people? And as well, as you say in your book as well, teaching never gets easier. It doesn't get easier. It's, it's still very difficult we have difficult years at year 25. Yeah. We might be more experienced, but it's still always a hard profession. Yeah. And that, I think, you know, one of the things, if, if a new teacher, if any teacher really were to ask me, like, what is, what is the number one thing that I can do in order to continue to want to teach in order to come back next year, in order to be effective in my practice, my ones, if, if it, I've got a lot of advice to give, yeah. but it, if, if it came down to one thing, it always comes down to surround yourself with good people, mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, I, you know, as funny as in my uh, seventh year of teaching, I was named California Teacher of the Year, right? In my eighth year of teaching, I got assigned that class right yeah. everybody listening has had that yeah. class at some point like it is the class that made me drive home crying every single night right and what of course what was worse is worse is i just been named california teacher of the year so everybody wanted to come to my class to see yeah. what i was doing and and right. you know they kind of walk out going what's up that dude's not that good right because i had you know this class that i was having a really hard time controlling and then one day our dean of students came in. He needed me to sign a form or something. It was totally unrelated. And he watched for a while. He came back after school and he goes, tough class, huh? I said, yeah, you don't even know. He goes, hey, let me help you. And I said, huh, all these years, I was telling my students, if you need help, don't be afraid to ask. Yep. It never occurred to me to just ask for help from some of my colleagues. Yeah. He and I were able to brainstorm some ideas, put some strategies in place, and things got better and better from, from that day on. And so, you know, when we surround ourselves with people who can help us in terms of, you know, with our pedagogy and our expertise, when yeah. we surround ourselves with people who, you know, are just, who uplift our soul and, and who fill our, our lives with joy, when we surround ourselves with you know, people who are interested in our well-being and who are interesting themselves, everything gets better and, and everything, you know, sort of continues to progress. Of course, the opposite of, is true as well. You know, when we surround ourselves with toxicity, that's, you know, yeah. ultimately what, what we become. And so, you know, if it comes down to one thing, I really think just, just as, just as my mom always would say, you know, in high school, you know, you're, you're going to be known by whatever friends you make and whatever friends you hang out with. I, I think that we really become who we surround ourselves with, especially in this teaching profession. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I heard you say a couple of things and I think it's really important because I don't, it doesn't matter who the teacher is. No teacher has all the knowledge, skills, experience, expertise to reach every single child. And yeah. so you have to be able to reach out. It's kind of like that medical model. You know, I had a hip replacement a few years ago. And before I went, I went to a, a hip um, doctor 
And he said, well, I'm not a hip surgeon. He said, I, I, I can tell you what's wrong, but I need to actually refer you to somebody else because I don't have that expertise. And then that hip surgeon had to consult with other people. And so it's important to use our, our collective wisdom in order to reach every single child. And I, I really appreciate you you even being honest and, and transparent and saying, I was California Teacher of the Year and I had struggled and I, I needed to ask somebody or somebody, you know, reached out and said, you know, I have, I might have some tips for you. I think that's so important in our, in our profession. I think we've come up and we've been socialized to think that we have to know it all. Yeah. And that's just not possible. Yeah. I always encourage teachers to think of themselves really as, you know, not, not to, you know, not to blow out the, the analogy, but, but to think of themselves kind of like a, a tree, right? Yeah. And, you know, so we're a tree, but really our, our network of colleagues, of teachers, of friends is our root system, right? What, what determines whether a tree weathers a, a nasty storm, right? It's not the size of the tree. It's not the height of the tree. It's not the location of the tree. It is the tree's root system. Yep. And sometimes the trees get different nutrients from different roots, right? That the roots serve a different purpose, right? And so... You know, we don't have to go, if we're having a problem, if we're having an issue with classroom management, we don't always have to go to the same person. We've got a root who we can, you know, tap to help us with classroom management. If we need some, you know, some strategies for our English language learners, you know, then maybe that's a different person. And so exactly. it's that ability to pull from our roots, but at the same time, we want to grow our roots. We want those roots to be intertwined with other roots of other trees. And we want to make sure that they stay healthy as well. That's a great analogy. I love that. I'm glad we yeah. have it on, on tape. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, let's talk a little bit about, about parents. Um, in your, uh, in your book, you talk about, you know, really, you know, communicating with parents and there, there's always this, this, kind of push and pull or, you know, you know, catch 22, because we, we want parents, parents are icing on the cake. We want, actually, they're more than icing on the cake. We, we need them, but there are times when they're not going to be available. And, and so how do we, how do we make sure that one, we are reaching out, engaging, making sure that we're involving parents but also not making excuses if parents aren't available and then we take it out on the child. Yeah, that, uh, isn't that the truth? I, I, I think about one of the, this amazing experience that I had once where I had a parent conference schedule. I was really struggling to connect with a student. Um, and so I had a parent conference schedule that his name was Michael, his mom was gonna come in and we were all set, you know, four o'clock on Thursday afternoon kind of thing. Right. Four o'clock comes and goes. She never shows up. Next day, I said to Michael, I said, hey, what happened? Your mom was supposed to, you know, come for a conference. He said, ah, I don't know. I said, does, does she usually miss appointments? He said, well, she goes to church three nights a week. She never misses that. And I realized, ah, she absolutely can go places. She absolutely shows up places. Yeah. She just wasn't showing up for me. Yeah. Right. And so the, I had at that point to go, OK, what what can I do to sort of build this relationship with the mom so that, you know, I'm on her list of places that she will show up at. Right. And so 
that's, I think that's one of the critical, I think factors is first of all, just not taking it personally yeah. and, and realizing it's not necessarily a reflection on you. It's not a, you know, a reflection on how much she does or doesn't care about her child's education or anything like that. Um, but it sometimes we do just have to get a little bit creative. And so I'll yeah. give you a couple of, a couple of, a couple of strategies and skills that I've used to connect with parents is that love to hear it. Yeah. First of all, this is one of my favorite ones. I actually learned this from one of my friends who's a toy salesman and he, you know, he has to call toys. So he has to cold call toy stores all the time to see if he can make an appointment to get in with their manager in order to show them their latest line of toys uh, to see if they want to sell them. And so what, what you do is you call and if, you know, maybe somebody answers if some, or maybe you leave a message or whatever, but um, you know, with it, somebody answers the phone other than the parents and you know you ask for the parent no she's not here right now or they're not here right now and you say okay no problem let them know that i'm going to call back at exactly eight o'clock tonight right right now if you say something like that you have to call back at eight o'clock that yeah. night otherwise you lose credibility really really quickly sure. but most of the time what happens is you call back at eight o'clock You've essentially made an appointment, right? And yep. they answer and they are expecting your call. So yep. that's that's one way. Instead of, oh, could you please have her call me? Please have them call me, right? Make the appointment right then and there. So just, just a little sales trick. The other thing that I really like um, to do with regards to connecting with parents is to remember parents aren't teachers, right? They don't have teaching credentials. Yep. And so what I see a lot of times is a parent will ask their kid a question. The kid won't answer immediately and the parent will just jump in and tell them the answer right. they haven't been trained on things like wait time right sure. so i'll actually tell parents and teach parents hey there's a really cool strategy that i that we learned uh, as teachers when anytime you ask your child a question in your head silently count to 10 and just give them a chance to answer and process that question right don't just jump in and answer it for them or i'll teach them you know the the the, the i do we do you do sure. you know strategy yeah. and so just arming the teachers or excuse me the parents with a couple of teaching strategies that they can easily use now they feel like they're a partner in this teaching thing and when they feel like they're a partner now they're going to be way more willing to to connect to build that relationship and to answer your call when you call because you know, now we're working together for, you know, for the, the to help their child be the best possible version of themselves. Yeah, I, I love that, Alex. One of the things that I heard you say again um, is is giving parents some tools. You know, I, 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 I always go in with the attitude that parents want the best for their kid. They're doing the best they know how. And we have many parents who did not have a good experience with school. So there's some trauma there. And so t talking to a teacher, talking to an administrator, there may be some latent trauma that's that's happening because they're they're having flashbacks to when they were in school. And so they automatically become defensive. Yeah. Why would they want to come on campus yeah. after the experiences they've had? Yeah. And and so I, I think, you know, giving parents tools um, to to help their children, you know, starting the school school year off with positive phone calls to every child in the in the classroom so parents know that the teacher cares and the teacher sees something positive in their child um, i think those are really important and i think one of the things that that uh you said is it's truly important for you 
um, to to make sure that you, you're kind of just persistent. Like you call and say, I'm going to call back at eight. And and that's really that's something that I really actually never thought about in terms of just scheduling a time, even with the the person who's not there, because yeah. they're, 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 leave the message. Yeah, yeah. Just do it on the message. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Um, and so w when you have a parent who's just not available um, and we all have those parents at times, your focus has to become right on that student. Yeah. And I mean, again, we want parents involved. But at some point, you're going to say, I'm the difference maker yeah. to this student. And so what do I need to do to make sure that I am in loco parentis when um, he or she is in my classroom, in my school? I, mean, I think that's really, really, really important. I think so as well. And I, you know, I often I also think that, you know, as teachers, look, we're we're going to do what we need to do to try to connect with parents. Uh, and sometimes you just can't, right? And and I, you know, as much as I want to say like, you got to do whatever it takes and you got to keep pushing and you got to keep going and things like that. There also is a point of diminishing returns where, you know what, I can continue to pursue this or try to, or get frustrated about this or whatever, or I can just take those five, 10 minutes. And, you know, just as we were saying, just help the kid with a, a specific skill that they need, you know, and, and understanding, look, all of us come to school with, you know, strengths, with weaknesses, with challenges and things like that. But um, the most effective time that we spend with our students is the time that we are right in front of them working with them. And so, you know, to, to not, not get too wrapped up in, you know, this challenge, that challenge with the parent kind of stuff, and just get back to, again, doing what we do best, which is, explaining things to students, building the relationship yeah. and keeping it engaging. Yeah. Hey, how do you um, make sure that that we're not becoming victims of the public instead of um, really um, helping people, helping our, our um, profession, helping educators become the, the news purveyors? Like we, we need to be sharing what's the great things that are happening in our building instead of, you know, taking in so much, oh, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. We have to be proactive. So how, how what are strategies for us to be proactive in terms of sharing our stories in, in our buildings and in our, in our profession? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think very critical right now, as you know, the, the yeah. as, as we see all sorts of things uh, from, from A to Z and then some in the media. And so really, I, you know, I think there's three things. First of all, and you already said it, is sharing stories, right? Yeah. Sharing the stories about the students, about the experiences, about the teaching and the teaching life, right? People love to hear stories. People, you know, remember stories. And so it doesn't have to be the story, the epic story about the time you hiked Mount Kilimanjaro or you pulled somebody from a burning car or something like that, right? It's right. just these funny stories, these human stories, these authentic stories about our interactions with our students. And, you know, we tell those that to our friends, we tell them, you know, at the dinner parties kind of thing. Yeah. And those stories, continue to live on and and in and that way in someone's mind when they see the news story about you know the negative thing they think about Brian and the story that he told them right. about him and his student and so that's that's one way the other way is you know I, I think that um, 
what a lot of teachers don't know or that a lot of educators don't know is that a lot of media is created, a lot of news media, newspapers, news shows, things like that is created because somebody picked up the phone and told the news reporter about it, right? Yeah. We don't have to wait for a news reporter to find, you know, to come to our school. Rarely are they going to come to our school and say, hey, what's going on here? I want to do a story, right? My wife, uh, what, her first job out of college was as a journalist. And so she was under contract to write 10 stories a week. And she said that anytime somebody called with a possible story, she would jump on it because she had only had, you know, she only get hit five of her 10 stories and she was looking for stories. Yeah. And so- very simple. You open up your local newspaper, you find out who the education reporter is, and you just email them and you say, hey, I'm doing this really cool thing in my class. I thought you might like to come cover it. We're doing this great, you know, theme day at, at our school. Thought you might like to cover it. Sometimes they'll come. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll answer your email. Sometimes yeah. they'll answer it too late. But if you're, you know, what I've always thought is if, if we're doing something in education that is remarkable, we have an obligation to tell other people about it. And so I got very good at just, I had a relationship with a couple of reporters and anytime we were doing a story or we were doing something kind of cool in our class, I just let the reporter know. Sometimes they'd come, sometimes they wouldn't, but I'll tell you, when they came and did a story, I mean, nothing, nothing is better to create a positive atmosphere. That's huge. Cool. And for the, I mean, the students were walking around for the next week like they were movie stars yeah. you know, because they had been in the newspaper. And um, that can really transform not, not necessarily the culture of the school, but the perception of a school sure. when it is on the news. When it, and, you know, these days you don't have to wait also. You can get out the video camera. You can create your own video. You can create your own messaging yeah. on social media and you can share that. And so, you know, there are wonderful things happening at schools every single day. It's just that we often don't take the time to, to, to create the messaging around that. Yeah, I love what you just said. And and also it it really is about, you know, creating a culture of celebration just in your school. And, you know, we as educators in general are kind of modest and we don't want to, you know, yeah. toot our horns, but we, we can't afford to not do that any longer. And it's not about bragging. It's about sharing the great things that are happening in our schools, in our districts, around our, our country. So people truly are understanding that we're doing a lot of great work. You know, my, my first uh, two years as a principal in a, um, a pretty challenging school, um, we sh did not make adequate yearly progress, um, but we were making progress. And right. so I said, we're going to tell our story. If a student was, you know, a fifth grade student was reading at a second grade level, but did not pass the state test, but grew two years in reading in that year, that's a victory. That's a celebration. We have to tell that story to come combat the nat narrative that that kid did not pass the test. And yeah. we're not using names, but we have to we have to tell those kind of stories. Eighty percent of our students grew a year and a half or two years in their reading this year. But the, the state test says this, but this is what we say. This is a great teaching that's happening. And if we keep doing that, it will snowball. We'll put more, we'll put more marbles in the marble jar and it will outweigh the negativity that is not always, most of the time it's not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. A friend and colleague of mine, Claudine James, she was, I, I was giving a presentation on teacher leadership 
And I said something to the effect of, look, if you're doing something amazing in education, you have an obligation to tell other people about it. And so she was doing these really cool grammar lessons and she ended up, she, you know, she really took that to heart and said, okay, I've got an obligation to tell other people about this. So she started her own TikTok, you know, channel and, uh, or account. And uh, now she, I think she's got like three and a half or 4 million viewers who wow. turn, tune in every day for her. And she's got a whiteboard. She does her grammar lessons. Uh, and, uh, but there it is like, you know, people are hungry for, good information. Uh, and, you know, as educators, we've got to, I think, take some time to just let other people know about that. I, you know, not necessarily at the expense of, you know, all of the other things that we have going on and things like that. But but if uh, I do believe if, if we're doing something remarkable in education, we, we should take the time and, and tell other people about it. Yeah. Um, and so we're getting ready to, to wrap up. I really appreciate your time, Alex. This has been been, been wonderful. Um, and this is why I started my, my podcast, because I wanted to make sure that I highlighted the, the wonderful things, the wonderful people, the wonderful authors like you who are making our world a better place, kid by kid, child by child, teacher by teacher. Um, and when we do that and we start to make it snowball, I truly believe you're, we're not going to be able to stop it. And so if we can, and it's not, it's not false positivity. We know all the challenges that we have in our profession. We know that, that we have kids who are not making it and we have to keep working and working and working at it. But we also know how hard we work as a profession and what we do for these kids and families. And we have an obligation, as you said, to share with the world that this is who we are. This is our profession. And we are not running anywhere. We are proud of what the work that we do every single day. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. And um, yeah, it's just, it's been a, an honor and a pleasure to, to be on, on your program. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I always end, um, my, my um, dad passed away a couple of years ago. And at his funeral, I used this old African proverb. It says, as I go, I am wearing you meaning that all the people who have touched my life positive, positively and some you know negatively i'm wearing and i'm a re i'm representing those people is not brian butler i have all these people who i'm wearing who have helped me become successful and i'm still learning and i'm still struggling in areas but what i say is after my my show is now i am wearing alex kajitani because all the things that I learned from you tonight, I, I researched, I you know read, I, I watched your your TEDx talk, which was fabulous. If uh, you haven't seen his TEDx, you all have to see it. It's fabulous. But it's really important for us to make sure that we're out front, um, being proactive and helping to share what great things, what great people we have in our profession, and not wait to be reactive to say, oh, by the way, we are doing a good job. And so again, my friend, thank you so much for being on a conversation with Brian, and I hope to talk to you very soon. Excellent. Thanks so much, and thanks to everybody watching and listening today. Dot and give it all you got. Just line up the dot and give it all you got. Come on, line up the dot and give it all you got.